0: Well, as was mentioned this morning, we take a short break from the book of Daniel, just with one chapter left to go, but uh, but we will pause and, and uh, take this Sunday to reflect on uh, Thanksgiving. Indeed, as this week uh, we celebrate as a culture and as a country, the uh, day of Thanksgiving, so it's appropriate for us as the church to use that maybe as a little prompt, uh, we don't uh, we're, again, it's not a ch- church calendar day; it's a cultural uh, holiday. But nonetheless, uh good to use these things as little prompts and spikes and goads to uh, to call ourselves back to such things. And so we're we're doing that. So we'll have this, and then Daniel, and then we, and then we'll be in Advent, which is hard to believe. I can't believe we're we're talking about Advent already. But this is where we are in the year. It flies fast. So today our text is Psalm one forty five. A Psalm of praise by David, and you know, praise and thanksgiving, while they are they are distinguishable, they're not separable. You know, it's it's tough to tell sometimes. Or are we praising or giving thanks? Uh, they're 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 kind of interwoven together, and so we're taking up this psalm as a beautiful psalm of praise, that which we just got to sing in Psalm forty-five A, uh, as a reminder to us or a chance for us to reflect upon. Uh, the, the goodness of God that we might be, not just talk about Thanksgiving, but that we might be stirred to give thanks unto God. I chose as the word of exhortation today, as I've already discussed uh, a bit, uh, Romans chapter 1, and I, I always come to Romans 1 um, whenever the topic of Thanksgiving comes up, because I am struck by uh, that verse, is its is it 20, 21, that... Paul says, you know, he, he, he's talking about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all, godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he goes down and he says, uh, he says, uh, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks. They neither glorified him Nor gave thanks. That Paul sees the wickedness, the suppression, the evil of man in high rebellion against God, this desire to, to kind of block God out, put blinders on, so we don't have to look upon his glory, as Calvin says, walking through the great amphitheater of his glory, but with blinders on, not lifting our eyes, lest we, in seeing him, realize we need to repent. We keep our heads down. We block ourselves from the glory of God. We suppress the truth of God down in unrighteousness. And what is the fruit of that? What does that look like? It looks like thanklessness. It looks like idolatry. They served and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Okay. That's where it, that's where it metastasizes to. It's where, it, it's where it works itself out to this thanklessness. You know, we are, we are built to worship. We are worshiping beings. And so fine. If we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, we're not going to lift our eyes and glorify him. We're going to start to worship something else. We're going to worship the creature rather than the creator. But for Paul, the fruit of this, the, the, the sign, if you will, that we can look for in our lives is thanklessness, and I, 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 what I love about it is it's one of those kind of tangible things. Like you kind of know whether you have this or don't, and so it's it's a, you know sometimes spiritual things can be tough to discern. This one's not tough to discern. You can ask: Do you tend to give thanks? And I don't just mean to one another. That's good too. That's a that's a good thing, right? It's it's a. A sign of humility that you tend to give thanks to one another when people do things for you. It's a wonderful thing. It's a, you're aware, you're you're recognizing someone else is doing something for you. That's good. That's good. But that's not what I mean. I'm talking about: Do you tend to give God thanks? And I don't just mean informal prayer, folding our hands and getting down on our knees and and having formal prayers of thanksgiving. But does it kind of again bubble out of you? Do you walk outside on a on a, a relatively warm fall morning like we have today, which is beautiful to enjoy and find yourself just saying, thank you, Lord. You know, do, do, you, do you see the gifts of God around you? Now, I remember uh, Pastor Doug Wilson in Idaho once saying, and on some talk he gave, it was many years ago, I heard this, but it, it struck me, you know, he he said, well, you know, we, we we bow our heads before a meal, and we usually do. We thank the Lord for the food. That's kind of customary. We all do that. Um, but he said, he said, and that's good, and that's good as far as it goes, but he said, and the metaphor stuck with me, he's great with metaphors, and he, he said, it's like we're standing under a Niagara Falls of blessing, and we stick a teaspoon into it, and we pull it, you know, we pull it out, it's got a little water left on there, and we go, Lord, thank you for this, you know, and and that's what we're doing at the meal, and that's good, because that tablespoon is a gift, and you should, but there is a Niagara Falls of blessings coming down on us, which we, fail to give thanks for. And I think a sign of Christian maturity is that we begin more and more and more to be aware of the Niagara Falls of blessing that is coming down on us. That you really do begin to see it. That the things which are ordinary in our lives, once we have eyes to see, stop being ordinary. You know, there was a a writer... Uh, a woman out in the Midwest somewhere—I forget where she is—but her name was Anne. Uh, is I think she's still alive. Uh, Ann Voskamp and I, I started reading the book because Christina was reading it, and uh, it, it was good. And then it just got a little too, uh, a little too saccharine, sugary sweet for me. But but um, but on the front end, it, it did it, it. It hooked me initially because uh, what she did—I forget—somebody gave her a challenge. She was struggling with uh, anxiety and depression and so forth, and. And I don't know. what I think it was a pastor friend. So whoever knows, people are listening on the internet and they know this book and they're like, "You're way off, Spanger. You're way off. Forgive me." But it's been a while since I started to read it. And but somebody challenged her, and this is what caught my attention: was somebody challenged her to list a thousand things she's thankful for, and she said, "Okay, so right." Was to get her off of herself, right? Get her eyes lifted off of her own anxieties and own troubles. And, but you try listing a thousand things you're thankful for, you know. And, and she started and, and she said it was very easy for like the first 20, you know. And then, and then it started to get tough. And then it became unbelievably easy over time. Because what she started to realize is that what is there that she can't thank him for? So at first it was like, I thank you for my children. I thank you for my marriage. I thank you for my health. I thank you for this. And then I was like, oh my gosh, what else? You know, you're looking around like, let's see, what else can I, you know, what else is there to be thankful for here? And then it starts to become easy because it's everything. And that's, we want to push through to that where it's like, that's a Christian vision of things where all of a sudden, oh, wow. The, the things I just take for granted in life are actually declaring your glory and I haven't heard them. They're actually manifesting your glory and I haven't seen it because it's humdrum of life for me or I'm too distracted or, you know, so we have to be aware of that. I mean, all of us. So so it's good for us to take a Sunday to reflect on this. Now, David does this in uh, Psalm 145. And of course, all through the Psalms, David has the eye of a poet. I think, you know, I've, I've come to, you've, you've heard me maybe talk about it since this, but I've, I'm not great with poetry. But I've come to enjoy poetry more over the past five years. And I think almost what I love more than the poetry is the idea of poetry. Because what I've gleaned from the poets that I've learned to love is they have an eye. Poets see things that you and I miss. They delight in things that you and I place right over. They don't just walk by it. They see it. And they attend to it. And they savor it. And then they put it in a poem. Now, I may not understand the poem initially. But I know that's what they're doing. And I desire that. I want the poet's eye. And David is a poet. David has the poet's eye. And he could see it. And this is what you get all through the Psalms. Okay, so Psalm, this brings us to Psalm 145. We're toward the end of the Psalter into what is now this, the climactic kind of clashing of the symbols at the end of the Psalter. You know, the the the, the, the music of the whole Psalm book is ending and we're getting that last tsh, 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 tsh of praise uh, from, from the last couple Psalms right to the end. And we have this in Psalm 145. David thanks God, but he thanks him in this in this declaration of praise, I will extol you. I will praise you, I will lift you up. My God, O king, and I will bless your name forever. Every day I will bless you. Again, the poet's eye and is, is not something. okay, he says, okay, now this is what I do. When I try to think about poetry i am like, okay, let me go try to do this. And I sit on my back porch and I try to just reflect upon the geese landing on the pond, you know. Where I, but but that's not how the poet does it. The poet does have times like that, but the poet just has the eyes. The, the shutter is always open, always receiving, you know, and always praising. And that's what David says he's going to do. He is going to be praising the Lord forever. And now I want us to think in in just looking at this psalm. Just three quick um, uh, causes for praise. Which are big thirty thousand foot view things, right? He's he's not going to be down into the minutiae. Go read like Psalm one hundred four. You know, Psalm one hundred four. He just takes us down into the world of, of like of nature and just starts saying, "Oh yeah, and this, and look at this over here, and look at that over there." You know, or Psalm nineteen, he lifts us up into the heavens. and says, "Wow, you know, look at the stars over here, and over here, and the gla- the grass and the flowers and the." But, but here he's not doing that. Here he, in Psalm 145, he's, he's really not looking at things. He's looking at God. He is, I think, feeding off of all the things. I have a life lived, a life on the, in with the sheepfold, a life as a king, a life as a soldier, a life as a husband, life as a dad, life as... All these experiences now. But now... He is doing with them what they ought to do to him and that is directing his eyes to God. So three broad things about God and then I want us to come back and really bring it back full circle to, okay, so what what does it mean for us? What should we do if we have the heart and eyes of David? So first, what does he praise him for? He praises him first for his greatness. Again, just broad just you are great how do i put this into words every day i will bless you and i will praise your name forever and ever great is the lord and greatly to be searched uh, greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable so the first thing david praises god for is just simply his godness his greatness right his Awesomeness, not awesome like we use it today, but the kind of greatness that leaves you speechless. C.S. Lewis says in in Screwtape Letters, there will only be two things in heaven singing and silence. I don't know if that's true, but it's poetic. (laughs) Right? There will either be singing of praise or there will be silence. Silence is a heavenly thing. We stare at his glory. It's like when you've looked at something great sometimes and you just, there are no words. Silence is appropriate with awe and wonder and so is singing. Singing, as, as somebody said, I don't know who to give credit to for this. You know, speech is great. Poetry is the condensation of speech to like, it's like taking the, the sugar maple sap and making it maple syrup. That's what poetry is—taking taking nectar and making it honey. That's that's poetry, but then singing is taking poetry and making it even more beautiful, right? When we hear the harmonies that uh, that we've been getting today from uh, the congregation, we get them every Sunday, praise God. But but with an added richness today, as, as Ben is here with us, um, I mean that's that's poetry we're doing today. But it's it's poetry that is just topped with. More maple syrup, I guess. I don't know how to. What, yeah, honey, honey with maple syrup on it. I don't know something, but it's it's taken to the nth degree. And we sing praise to God for His greatness, His greatness. He is awesome and holy. So we're silent, or we're singing praise to God. You know that the and here here I would throw in all the attributes of the greatness of God, and I think chief among them is the attribute of His holiness. His holiness. You know, when when we begin the Lord's prayers, we did already today. You know, we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What we're saying there is, may your name be made great. He doesn't need us to do it, but we're just praying, Lord, may it be manifested. May it be hallowed, may it be set apart, may it be exalted above everything else. The greatness of God is his holiness, his distinctness from all the works of his creation, which makes what Paul says in Romans 1 so bad, right? That we take the glory due to him. He is the great God who then we take his glory, the glory that is due to him, and we start drizzling it out upon his creatures. And we worship them and we start declaring them to be so great and awesome when he's right in, in our midst. It's insulting. It's blasphemous. And David doesn't fall prey to it. David, in enjoying all these things, has his heart, his eyes lifted to the unsearchable greatness. I take all eternity. This is why I believe in heaven, I've, and for all eternity, I believe we will learn because we're still finite. We'll have perfect minds. We'll be able to receive, but but again, he's infinite. Like every morning, his greatness will be new to us. Right, people if you've ever had this thought and then felt guilty for having it, that heaven could be end up being boring, because it's like, oh no, all eternity. I mean, let's admit it. We don't have to raise hands here, but we've all felt that some twinge of that and then felt guilty for saying it. But let me, let me, let me remove uh, all fears of that, all fears of it, because every morning the search, if you can call it that, for the end of the greatness of God will you'll never reach it. It will be new and exciting and beautiful. Fascinating, awe-inspiring all-inspiring. Every day his greatness is unsearchable. The second thing he praises him for, and here I'm gonna skip over a bunch of text I'm gonna drop down into verse thirteen, is his sovereignty. And again, you can see how this is related. Okay, he is he is great and awesome, but he's also the king. You know, he's our father who is in heaven, but his name is hallowed and his kingdom will come. And David down, down later in verse, uh, in verse 12 to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So he is great and awesome and holy, and he's also sovereign. He is the king, the king of kings. And as such, he is a ruler, one before whom we must bow, one to whom we must listen, one to whom we must submit. And we will find that his reign is a glorious reign. It is an edifying reign. It's a sustaining reign, but it is a reign nonetheless. And if we doubt it, down in verse 20, he he. Kind of comes back to the theme of the, the reign of the Lord after just saying, and we're going to get to this in a second, how generous he is to his people. But in verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. The wicked he will destroy. The holiness of God is an awe-inspiring, beautiful thing. It makes isaiah fall on his face before him and 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 worship but it also makes isaiah fall on his face and call down damnation on himself you know he he falls down he says woe is me i'm a man of unclean lips the holiness of god for those who are in christ is a beautiful awe-inspiring song-inspiring thing but it is something that indeed will judge the unrighteous and the wicked like chaff the scripture says they will burn It's important for us to remember that our Father is the King. The call of the missionary, the call of the evangelist, the call of the one whose feet on the mountain are called beautiful because he brings a herald of good news. The message he brings in Romans and in in Isaiah, the message he brings is one that says our God reigns. It is the reign And the rule, the sovereignty of our God, the fact that he has all authority in heaven and earth, that when John in Revelation sees a door standing open in Revelation 4 and he's summoned up into the heavens, the first thing he sees when he enters into this glorious room is a throne. And I saw a throne and one seated upon it. That's the first image he gets of heaven is an image of the authority and the reigning power of God. Our God is the king. And that's important to remember on multiple fronts, right? It's it's a cause for praise. It's a cause for trembling. It's a reminder to us not to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, but to bow before him to realize that you have an authority over you and that you need to honor him and obey, that your life is not just here for you to kind of make your way through it and get the make the best 70 or 80 years you can out of it. But you have an authority to whom you must obey and bow and look to for direction. At the same time, it's an encouragement to know that with all hell breaking loose all around us in the world, that there is in heaven a throne with one seated upon it. Who is not letting things spiral out of control, but is who is working and intending and ordaining all things for his glory and for our good. That's a tremendous comfort and cause for praise. And may we praise him and may we give thanks to him for that in the midst of the chaos. And that tells us that even the things we don't understand as trouble swirls around us, I don't know what you're doing. God, Father and King. But I know that you are sovereign and nothing happens apart from your will. You have foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. We thought about that last week as we thought about Daniel with the, the, the listing out of 500 years of kings and, and kingdoms. And a lot of it was going to bring trouble and chaos and it was going to be all kinds of evil in there. And God says, and this is the way it will be. Our God is sovereign. I may not understand everything he does, but he's sovereign over these things and it's cause for praise. So he is great. And he is sovereign. And then thirdly, David praises him because of his goodness. And here, we, we, we hold these two things. Just like in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Our Father, we, we get a tender image. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We have, we have the awesome nature of God and the tender nature of God that are not pitted against each other. They're not competing for which one will define God. They're beautifully together in his nature, and so also here. Our God is king. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that his son, the anointed one, is Lord over all. He will damn the wicked. This is all true. He is great, awesome, holy king. Those things are all true. And in all those things, he is good is good. You'll remember, I've referred to it before in Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe when Lucy gets to, to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house and Mr. Beaver is explaining Aslan, this lion, you know, and and uh, it kind of scares Lucy, you know, they haven't met Aslan yet. And wow, that sounds really scary, a big lion, like he might eat you. And she says to uh, Mr. Beaver, you know, well, is he safe? And he kind of chuckles as oh my dear, no, he is not safe. he is not safe. This is not a tame lion we're talking about. He is not safe, but he is good. He's not safe, but he is good, right? This is, again, just like that, he is great and awesome. The wicked he will damn. No, he is not safe, but he is good. And David spends the majority of his time here of the things he's praising him for, for delighting in his goodness. So we get this: your greatness is unsearchable up in verse 3. Down below, we get your kingdom as an everlasting kingdom, your dominion, an everlasting dominion. The wicked you will you will destroy. But then back up in verse eight and nine, in sandwiched in the middle of this, the Lord is gracious. He is full of compassion. He is slow to anger. And great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. And then flipping over to verse 14 the Lord upholds all who fall, he raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will hear their cry and save them. I mean, he just waxes poetically and eloquently about the goodness. No, he's not safe. Don't you ever think that his name is to be hallowed. His kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, it will. Yet he offers himself as a father. He's a God who is abundant with grace and mercy. He overflows with grace and mercy and love for his people so patient with us, so much more patient with us than we are with other people. And he's the one truly being offended, truly being sinned against, and yet he doesn't just smite us. He is gracious and full of compassion. His tender mercies are over all his works. He, he lets rain fall on the just and the unjust. He provides the just and the unjust with a beautiful day like this. Sinner and saint get to walk outside today and enjoy the beautiful, fresh air of a nice New York fall day. He's gracious and compassionate. Now, who hold us accountable for that? For what we've done? Have we suppressed the, the gift? Or have we walked outside and enjoyed this and said, thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness and your compassion to us. In verse 14, he upholds all who fall, the lowly. Again, here it gets to our confession of sin. Whether we fall physically or just in weakness, I can't, I can't get through this day. We fall emotionally, psychologically, physically, or spiritually. Here's the, here's the tender-heartedness of our God. That when we stumble, when we fall, again, in, on the wide range of potential fallings, He upholds us. He raises up all who are bowed down. Again, this is, the, this is the uniqueness of our God. And I've preached on this before with Psalm 113, you know. you know Who is like the Lord, our God, seated high above the heavens? Well, every God is like that. What do you mean, who is like our God? Every would-be God, all the claimants to be God. They all claim to be seated high above the heavens. Aha! But he says in Psalm 113, who is like the Lord our God, seated high above the heavens, who reaches down into the airsheep to lift the beggar and to seat him with the princes of his people. Like that. Sure, Zeus claims to be high and lifted up, and, and Thor claims to be high and lifted up, and Brahma claims to be high and lifted up, and Allah claims to be high and lifted up. But there is no God like Jehovah who though he is high and lifted up and worthy of all your praise and worthy for all you to have your face in the ash heap bowed before him, nonetheless reaches his holy hand into the dirty ash heap to lift you up and to seat you, the beggar, with the princes of his people. There is no God like Jehovah. And David praises him for it. The Lord is gracious like that. You give to them their food, you open your hand, you satisfy them. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, even the ways I don't understand. This is why, even as Ann Voskamp could say in 10,000, I think maybe it was 10,000, I can't, maybe it was beyond 1,000. Maybe she started with 1,000 and went to 10. But what you begin to realize is even your troubles are blessings, because the Lord is righteous in all his ways and gracious in all his works. Now, what are we to do with this? If you, if you look at David, now here I want to go to the little passages I skip. Let's go to 4 to 7, 10 through 12. And just look at all the verbs that David throws in there. And here now, I think, because David says this is what's going to happen, but in some sense he's speaking for us, but, uh, but also, also for himself. But let's just look. I'm just going to read it and just listen to the verbs, starting in verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness, and they shall utter the memory of your goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. Down to verse 10. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power and make known to the sons of men his mighty acts. A lot of verbs there. And all of them, almost all of them, have to do with recounting, right? It's like I receive these things and then I do something with it. And most of these things have to do with speaking. We speak. We praise. We declare. We sing. We utter. We make known. We take these things and then we sing about them and we talk about them and we declare them. So a couple things, just a couple notes on this as we look through it, and then I'll close. Notice in verse 4, one generation shall praise your works to another. This is important, right? It's important for Christian parents As we raise up our children before a Christian church, to make sure that we are passing this down to the next generation, that we are raising, that we're not satisfied with just, hey, do I get to heaven? But it's about declaring this to the generation behind us so that the generation behind us has it. And I give credit to John Piper for pointing this out to me, Uh, not personally, of course, but in verse four, it's interesting. He doesn't say, one generation shall teach your works to another, but Piper, in his beautiful way, makes the point. One generation shall praise your works to another. And he, made, he makes the point on this that it's not just, hey, make sure we all do our catechism or make sure we do Sunday school and teach them that. That's all important. Very important, I would argue, right? But at the same time, he says, more important than that, let them see you praising him. let You tell the other generation, but in such a way that it's just bubbling out of you. You're praising God to them. That's an odd way to say it. When you, when you hear it read, it just sounds nice. But when you start to think it, one generation shall praise your works to another. But that's what we're to do. And, and we can think about this from generation to generation or just to our neighbor. Yeah, we need to tell our neighbors about Jesus. But more than that, we need to praise Jesus to our neighbors. Like we need to rejoice in him in the presence of our neighbors so that they hear us in so doing, declaring the mighty acts of God. Verse 5, not only are we to praise and to declare, but verse 5, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty. Again, here's where we need to pray for eyes and ears, right? The poet's eye, right? The poet, what the poet does better than us, unless you're a poet, (laughs) but the painter does this as well, Mark (laughs) Casada. Let us not forget the painters in our midst, okay? What, what, what does Mark do well? So let's give Mark a little credit. We're going to a little shout out to Mark, who, by the way, a little, uh, little public uh, service announcement his, his works are uh, at the Katona Library uh, for all listening on the internet. Um, landscapes. Landscapes. Yeah, but, but so if you've ever looked at one of Mark's paintings, uh, Mark wants to be specific about what kind of painting. But if you've ever looked at, right, a pain, what does a painter do? A painter sees. A painter sees. Right? They see the beauty. They see the lighting. You try to draw some. Try and draw a face. You'll draw like a triangle for a nose. You know, Mark won't. You know, what Mark sees when he looks at your face is not a nose. He sees lighting and shadows. And so when he draws, if he draws a face, he would draw a face without drawing a nose. He would just draw shading. And, you know, and the balance between shade and light would produce a nose, believe it or not. Whereas I would draw an outline of a, you know, a nose because I'm not actually seeing your nose, I have an idea already of what it should be, and I put it on the paper. But the artist sees what's in front of him or her. They actually look and they can see, and they put that on paper. The poet can see because they meditate. They they slow think, you know, like slow cooking a meal. You know, there's a reason why fast food's not great. You know, we eat it. <laughs> I'm going to eat it on the way home. But slow-cooked food, right, has a richness to it. Well, so does slow-cooked thoughts. And the poet and the painter and many other people slow-think. They observe and they meditate. Uh, who's it? Thomas Cranmer, the, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, uh, beheaded by, uh, by Bloody Mary said that we need to learn to chew the cud. It's not the most beautiful image, but but you know, we gotta learn to chew the cud. To savor the truth of God, right? I always use my dog Ralphie in this one. I'd give him a piece of steak, you know? I'd be grilling in my, my he's gone now, my old springer spaniel, but Ralphie come up to me and he kind of look at me he just you know and I he's my dog and I want to honor that and you know so fine I give Ralphie a little piece of steak but you know it's a steak for crying out loud you know and and Ralphie never even stopped to taste it he just you you, you give it to him and it just pull it out of my hand and then it was like it would be like Gone, you know, and he'd be looking at me like, "For more," and I then I get angry at him, and I'm having this fight with him because I'm telling him that's not how we eat steak. Okay, this is steak. This isn't you know, this is just some scraps, Ralphie. This is a steak, and therefore you can't just gulp this down. This needs to be savored, you know. So then I, I I try and teach him a lesson. So I take another piece, and I give it to him, but I wouldn't I wouldn't let him have it. You know, he'd get a bite on it and I'd pull back and we'd fight because I'm saying, you're going to taste this dadgummit. You're going to, you're going to enjoy this, you know? And then he would just slob it down. and i would be like, that's it. Get out of here. No more for you. But this is what we tend to do with the good gifts of God. It's like, we just gulp them down and we look for another one. You know, we get, we enjoy a beautiful day and we move on to another gift and Cranmer and the poets and the painters would say to us, David would say to us, oh, oh chew, chew your food. Meditate. Don't don't just even what's going to happen today from the text from from the sermon. Is why I like Sunday school. We get to do that, but then beyond, like savor. Not my words. The scripture. The Lord is speaking to you today through the word. What are you going to do with it? Gulp it down like Ralphie and move on to the next thing, or do we meditate? Do we enjoy the gifts of God? So, our charge today. Is to have eyes and ears and then ultimately mouths that we might see, that we might enjoy, that we might speak, meditate, declare, sing, make known, praise, bless, talk of the greatness and the glory of God. So that it doesn't just stay with us but flows through us to the next generation and certainly to our neighbors. So I wish you all indeed a happy Thanksgiving this coming Thursday, and may it just be another day of doing what we do every day. It's just a chance to do it with our, you know, direct our non-Christian neighbors to the true source of Thanksgiving, but may the Lord give us thankful hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to sing and declare and speak of and bless and extol talk of your name. In your greatness. Forgive us for being like Ralphie. Forgive us for gobbling down your gifts and looking for more with a panting tongue. Father, may you teach us to slow think. May you teach us to see and to hear and to savor the blessings that you give us and the blessing that you are. For Father, may we use all of your gifts as tribulates and streams that can be traced back to the fountainhead and the source of all blessing that is Christ. Heavenly Father, you are good and you are great and you are sovereign. Keep us faithful that we might sing your praises for we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.